If you would, take your Bible and turn to Psalm 143. Psalm 143. Well, we've been walking through the different elements of worship that are acknowledged here in these last 15 psalms. And as we come to Psalm 143 this evening, we have the final psalm of repentance. I think if we were to take a poll about the popular elements of worship, um, repentance would probably be pretty low on the list in uh, the modern mindset when it comes to worship. And yet we find in the Word of God it is such an essential part of what it means to truly worship the living God. Now some have argued that this 143rd Psalm is not really aimed at uh, repentance because it doesn't continually flow with confession of personal, particular sin. In fact, it really, in verse 2, it acknowledges um, sin one time explicitly uh, when the psalmist says in verse 2, no one living is righteous before you. It's kind of the same uh, sort of affirmation that we find in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned. It's not specific to the psalmist. It's a general acknowledgement that everyone is unrighteous. And so there are some who would argue that this really isn't a psalm of repentance at all. But in fact, as we work through uh, the remainder of this psalm, what we find is that verse 2 is merely just the starting point for David. Uh, And he goes on to acknowledge his need for God, his need to be justified by faith, and his need for God to continually preserve him. So uh, as we lean into this psalm, we need to understand that, that in essence... Repentance is a complete change of mind and a calling out to God for mercy, realizing our desperate need for Christ. And that is what Psalm 143 aims to add and highlight to, uh, in our worship. So if you would, with that in mind, uh, stand to do honor uh, to the reading of God's Word as we begin in verse 1 of Psalm 143. David writing here, under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me. In your righteousness enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me set in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me, bear in, let, me, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way that I should go. 
For to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. This is God's word to you and I. Would you pray with me, beloved? Father God, we come into your presence tonight and we acknowledge the reality that far too much of our life is lived in an unrepentance towards you. So we ask that you would convict us, draw us near to your throne, open our eyes to see how sinful we are and how glorious you are. Help us to not be like those religious in our world today, but help us to genuinely worship in spirit and in truth. Father, help us to come before your throne tonight, not in our own strength, but under your grace. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. When Martin Luther nailed his, I have a friend who called me earlier this week, and uh, he's not a Catholic friend, um, Protestant friend, but he decided that because of several circumstances, he was going to put one of his children in a Catholic school. Um, And He said, I don't know if it was a good idea or not. And I said, no, brother, I don't know that it was a good idea at all. Because I know your son, and he's not shy about what he believes. He's probably going to nail his his homework to the teacher's door. Um, You're going to be out the expense of several doors if you're not careful. I, I don't know that I would do that. But all of that to say, at that one pivotal moment in the Reformation when when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door castle door there at Wittenberg, um, really launched the Reformation, and, and unintentionally so. Um, Luther really kind of had a mindset in some sense that if he would merely do the work of showing the church her error, uh, she would wake up and turn in repentance and live according uh, to what Scripture really teaches. He was mistaken. And we know what follows. What he... The, the, the first of his 95 theses read this. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, He meant that of the entire life of the believers should be one of repentance. Now to you and I, that might not sound earth-shattering, but there was this particular... Look, there was this whole conversation that had kind of spun out uh, in medieval times that was really aimed at, okay, we are absolved of our sin in our uh, baptism was the theological understanding that was prominent. Not that it was necessarily accurate. But then the question was, so what do we do with those sins that come after our baptism? Now, we know that ultimately we are justified by faith alone and Christ alone, and He has paid the penalty for them all. Uh, But the question for these people in this particular time was, was what do we do with this? If we come into the church and we've been in some sense ceremonially purified, then how do we 
uh, handle the reality that we continue to sin? Well, the Catholic Church had built an entire uh, system of penance, of of doing different various things to garner the forgiveness of Almighty God. And in fact, if you were to have read Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of of heaven is is near, uh, in the Latin Vulgate, that would have been translated to, to say, literally, do penance. So if you would have argued with somebody in the medieval time, go to your Bible and look what it says. They would say, I did. It says that I'm supposed to follow this medieval system of doing penance. Well, Martin Luther had carefully begun to study the Greek text and he had really, uh, that, that, that had come to it through Erasmus, and he came to this understanding that doing penance is not the import of what that text means. Rather, what is meant is what he wrote there in his thesis that, that our entire lives are supposed to be filled continually with repentance. Uh, He understood uh, that to be a repentant individual meant a radical shift in one's mind and entire disposition of life. And he would later write to his uh, mentor, uh, Staupitz, I venture to say that they are wrong who make more of the act in Latin than of the change of heart that is found in the Greek. Isn't that fantastic? That he acknowledged the error that was going on in the medieval church and this act of doing something and he pivoted to the reality that we must, if we are going to live a life biblically in accordance with the Word of God that is repentant, it is not a change in action. Primarily, it's a change of heart that produces a change in action. Now, Fast forward, and you would, some of you probably glaze over at these church history rants. But there's a reason. Friends, I believe wholeheartedly that we ebb right back into the dark ages continually. If we are not careful, we do the exact same thing in just a new way. And in fact, uh, several years ago, in the late 90s, there was a declaration that was signed called the Cambridge Declaration. And one of the particular thrusts of this declaration had to do with the life of repentance inside the church. And Sinclair Ferguson, some of you will remember that name, penned what I'm going to read for you, these five statements And part of his argument is that we really have fallen back into the Old old, uh, medieval uh, viewpoint of doing things not in accordance with the Word of God. And so he, he made this commentary on repentance in modern evangelicalism. And when I say modern, we're talking late 90s, so it's not gotten better. He says, repentance has increasingly been seen as a single act 
severed from a lifelong restoration of godliness. You see how that's a reality in the modern church today? Uh, We no longer see what Luther is saying, that our lives should be one continually of repentance. We truncate the Gospel and make repentance into something you do at the point of conversion, but not a reality all throughout your Christian experience. Secondly, the canon for Christian living has increasingly been sought in a Spirit-inspired living voice within the church rather than in the Spirit's voice heard in Scripture. That is, we make much of the subjective feeling And feelings matter, and our experience in the Spirit matters, but we don't submit it to the Word of God is what he's saying. Number three, the divine presence was brought to the church by individuals with sacred powers deposited within them and communicated by physical means. And we focus on sacredodalism in some sense, and we see that alive in various ways today. The worship of God is increasingly presented as a spectator event of visual and sensory power rather than a verbal event in which we engage in a deep soul dialogue with the triune God. Let me boil that down to you. It means, boys, they're putting on a show. They're not preaching the Word. And number five, the success of ministry is measured by crowds and cathedrals rather than by preaching the cross, by the quality of the Christian lives, and by faithfulness in the people of God. Now, why do I mention the Cambridge Declaration and those emphases? It is simply because that is what I believe David is aiming at here in Psalm 143. David is pointing at the reality that his life is one where there is a dangerous condition. And so he remembers the past works of God. He pleads to God for guidance. And he desires that God would preserve him in the difficulty that he faces. But at the forefront of that, at the forefront of his worship, is not merely a rote acknowledgement of the difficulty that he faces, but rather is an acknowledgement that as he comes to God, he needs to repent. And he needs to do that continually. Luther would go on later to say, I have learned that even my repentance needs repentance. That there was nothing he could do right in worship without first coming before the living God with a humble spirit of genuine contrite repentance. I don't know if you all noticed, but Sunday morning's service order changed. And it changed because we are prayerful and constantly questioning uh, the way that we orchestrate our Sunday morning service and, and the way that we want to lead in our gathering corporately on Sunday morning is to begin with a time of confession. Of going before the Lord and acknowledging that we are called to repent. And friends, that is glaringly missing from the gathering of most Christian churches. And for so long that some people will slander any church that dare to exercise corporate confession as though they were Catholic. 
Which is a total misunderstanding altogether of what Catholic doctrine teaches. It's interesting when people make those accusations. I just go, well, that's violating the ninth commandment towards our Catholic friends in this community and towards our church. Because we're not doing what the Catholic Church is doing. There is no one giving sacred ministry and absolving you of your sins. You are taking time before the triune God of all of the heavens to prepare yourself for worship and acknowledge that you are a sinner before you, you pretend to worship. And friends, I, I just I want you to understand from the bottom of my heart, it's not about just some making something mechanical. It, it is about giving opportunity that we would not be mechanical. I think any gathering where there is not an opportunity for one to confess to Almighty God that they are a sinner in need of the mercy and grace of God, in that moment, what is actually happening in that, in that gathering devoid of confession is in fact mechanical. Because you haven't acknowledged who you are and why it is that you've shown up to worship. Repentance is at the forefront of biblical worship. And friends, our neighbors and our religious authorities in this day will tell us, even though it's at the forefront of biblical uh, uh, worship, it would be most expedient if you would remove it altogether. And we have a decision to make. Is that going to be the character of our gathering? And my argument is it should not be. We should cry out before the Lord. We should take time before we go into His presence to acknowledge our sin. And that, in fact, is what is happening here, I believe, from the very first word. Hear my prayer, O Lord. I don't think David is coming and saying, God, I demand, based on my righteousness, that you listen to me. I believe that what he is saying, if we hear him rightly, is God, I am a sinner, not based upon my righteousness, but based upon who you are. Hear my prayer. There is an import of of repentance even from that very first interaction. Now some argue that the confession here is again weak and it's not not specific. David is not uh, pointing to specific sins in his life. But I think part of what he's doing is he's modeling the universality of sin in our lives and our need to acknowledge that prior to a right plea with God. And part of what he's pointing at is, is ultimately what we find in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 3 and the reality that, that, that we need the mercy and the grace of God and that we cannot earn our salvation. We must come through the forgiveness of Christ alone. It is a constant religious... Um, Failure to believe that we can do enough good things that somehow God would look down upon us and He would have mercy based upon our works. But we do well to remember Isaiah chapter 64. All of our righteous acts are like filthy 
rags. There's nothing that we can bring into His presence that would require Him to show mercy to us. The only way, in fact, that we can gain a righteous standing before, before a holy God is to have imputed to our account the righteousness of Christ. We depend upon an alien righteousness. And part of what we're doing when we come before the Lord in a repentant heart and posture in worship is that we cry out that we would be reminded of that alien righteousness. Of our deep need for the mercy of God, not based upon who we are, but based upon who God is. And that is exactly what's going on here in verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Do you see the ground of David's request for mercy? The ground for David's request for mercy is found in the word faithfulness. God, I plead for Your mercy not because of my morality, but because You are a faithful God and that faithfulness is hinged on Your what? Look at the end of verse 1. On Your righteousness. There really is kind of an, uh, I think, a, um, an exalting of the immutability of God in this first verse. That the reason we can trust in the faithfulness of God is because He is righteous and He does not change in any way. And we know that when we come here, whether it's on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, and we gather to sing God's praise, we come not in our own strength, not trying to do sacred ministry to be absolved of sins, not not trying to, to square up our account in our own strength, but knowing that we are recipients of mercy only because Christ is faithful to us. And what a joy it is that He is faithful. And friends, we're... We see this not only, I believe, here in verse 1. We also see it in Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. But we also see it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. You'll remember these words. If, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive uh, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is this plea for mercy here in these first verses. And then David goes on to acknowledge in verses 3 and 4 the danger that he faces. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in the darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. There is this acknowledgement of a threefold problem that he is pursued by the enemy, that he is crushed to the ground, and that he is made to set in the darkness like those long dead. Friends, there is no better picture of what it means to be a sinner apart from the grace of Almighty God. Sin is not a light problem that merely has created some hiccup in your relationship with God where you just need to try harder. Sin is something that crouches at the door. It pursues us in all of the areas of our lives. And in Adam, apart from the grace of God, it crushes us and lays us low as though we were dead. Because in fact, in a spiritual sense, we are. 
We have an enemy that doesn't just seek to do us mild harm and, uh, and, and besmirch the glory of God. Satan is really for the ruin and destruction of many. And so we must be wise and we must cry out to God knowing that it is not in our own strength that we are able to walk in faith with Christ, but it is only by the mercy of God, according to the faithfulness of God, that is founded on the righteousness of God. So David here acknowledges being pursued in in this difficulty. And, And what does he do? Does he pivot and say, God, I'm in trouble, so let me tell you what my plan is. That would be a very foolish thing for David to do, and it's not what we find him doing. Instead, what David does is he backs up and he is reminding himself of who God is, of God's character, of how God has acted towards the nation and towards David individually in the past. And so we have these three responses in the heart of David. He remembers, he meditates, and he ponders on what God has done. Now we find all throughout the Psalms and all throughout the Old Testament an encouragement to remember God's faithfulness in His covenants. To remember God's kindness towards the nation of Israel. And this is time and time and time again. And so we come again to to Psalm 143, and and David is doing this in order to work through the pain and the fear of all of the approaching enemies, and he's, he's remembering how God has been continually with him. He meditates on his deliverance, and then he ponders, he reasons out from past experience that if God helped him in the past, he will not fail to help him in the present. And again, by implication, not only in verse 1, but also in the import of these three things, in remembering, in meditating, in pondering, we have the doctrine of immutability laid before us. Our God does not change in all that He does for our redemption. H.C. Leopold said that his actions, God's actions all throughout the historical record of the Old Testament reveal His disposition toward the saints. Towards His chosen people. And that should be a great encouragement. Because as we look into these pages, we find a group of people who are rebellious, who are foolish, who are wayward, who do not listen to the words of God. And yet we find the Almighty God continually pursuing that group of people. Why? For His own glory. And so in our own lives, when we experience the other side of repentance, when we are walking in a wayward fashion and we're foolish and we're not living under the Word of God. The repentance isn't this kind of just beat us over the head. It's a loving call to come back to God and to remember that He is the faithful One pursuing us. He is the One calling us to right repentance and right worship. I think it's wonderful that we have these 15 Psalms. And if we're 
if we're not careful, I think what we'll do is we'll think about the last 15 psalms as though they speak of worship, and there's one in there that really deals with repentance. But if we actually understand the 15 uh, psalms that conclude the Psalter, what we should rightly understand is that they are all a call to repentance. Because worship in the church, in the gathering of the saints, far too often is disordered. And it's ordered, disordered according to our flesh and not according to the Word of God. And so again, another grace that here in the middle of these psalms that are calling us, I think collectively, to repent and walk in, in worship biblically, we find one that gets down and is just specific. That we must repent of the way that we often worship. So here... We, we find in verse 6 also David saying, I stretch my, out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Think about that. David doesn't say, God, I show up to church on Sunday morning and I do the thing that I signed up to do. He doesn't say, God, I need you to do me a favor and so... I'll do a list of, of things. God, I really want this relationship with you, uh, so you'll give me what I want. This is not David's heart. David's longing, his desires, his appetites are not for the things of this life, but for a deep fellowship with God Himself. Do you know what would radically change America? It's not if a bunch of Republicans get voted into office. We could have... They call it a, a red wave, a, a red, uh, whatever's bigger than a tsunami. A, a red global killer. The whole Congress could be your flavor of politician. And it's not going to change the sinful hearts of men. What will, is we come, when we come to the realization that we have walked in our own way according to our own wisdom for our own purposes far too long and that the only thing that can genuinely satisfy our souls and genuinely transform our nation is when we desire a relationship with the living God. And that only comes by grace. That only comes by the kindness of God. So that's what we find here in David's heart. Is he, he desires not merely the, 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 the blessings of God, but a relationship with God Himself. Now in the next section, David turns in direct appeal asking for guidance. He, he wants the Lord to show him how he is to walk. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way that I should go, for to you I lift my soul. A progress here in this particular passage is that first, he says, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. What does David need to know the way he should go? Is it some sort of mystical just zapping him uh, so that he would have a particular revelation? No. He wants 
the revelation of God in the words of God. He wants to know God by what He has declared through His prophets. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. David needs God to reveal to him who God is and how he is to live his life. Second, make me know the way that I should go. David needs to be directed. David needs an impression in his life based on the revelation that God has given of how he should go. And third, he says, teach me to do your will. David needs the motivation to carry out the revelation and the direction of Almighty God. I think far too often what I find in modern evangelicalism is that we have this heart of, God, I need guidance. And we pray for subjective guidance, and there's nothing wrong with that. We should do that. Uh, what, what, what house should I buy? What career should I have? What person should I marry? All of those kinds of questions. And we just wait for God to, you know hire Lamar and put a billboard up down on Knickerbocker and write out exactly what the plan is. All the while neglecting what he has written in his word. And friends, we certainly should pray for specific guidance in our own lives, but it should never be disjointed or disconnected from the specific special revelation of God. So if, we go, if we're going to worship rightly and if we're going to walk in repentance, we're going to seek guidance from God. We're going to desire that He would be Lord over our lives. And we're going to live under His revelation and His direction, knowing that it is He alone who can move in our lives to motivate us to do what would bring Him glory. And then we find in these final verses that David kind of turns again to the problem of his enemies. In verse 9, deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are, are my God. Let your spirit lead me on level ground. For your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life in your righteousness. Bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all my adversaries, the adversaries of my soul. Now this particular section kind of has the feel of imprecation. That David is crying out, God, you go get them. And that's true in some sense, but we have to see the priorities that are really laid out before us in this psalm. One, the first priority that David has in living under the revelation, the direction, and the motivation of God is that everything be done for your namesake. Not for my honor, not for what I want, but God, for your glory, for your namesake. David asks God to preserve his life that, he, that, that all may know God as the utterly trustworthy God that he actually is. Friends, when we live our lives seeking the glory of God before all things, putting His name above our desires, we are, we are walking in a, in a, in a God-honoring way. Secondly, His plea acknowledges the righteousness of God. Again, He, he appeals in His memory as He internalizes um, 
God's faithfulness in the past, what He's doing when He appeals to the righteousness of God and the judgment of those who are against Him, is He is, he is acknowledging that God's nature has not changed. And so He asks God to deliver Him and to, to be the judge and to handle His adversaries and to deal with the difficulty of the world, not again for His own plans and his own purposes, but first for God's to vindicate his own name, and then secondly, so that those in the kingdom would, would, would have a, a picture of God's righteousness. That he would defend his own name and he would walk in accordance with his character. And then third, he acknowledges or, or, or calls to mind the unfailing love of God. And it is in this final analysis that our hearts can truly rest knowing that God does everything for His name's sake according to His righteousness and in accordance with the unfailing love that He has towards everyone that belongs to Him. So what does repentance look like? Repentance looks like meditating, remembering, Everything that God has done in the past to show faithfulness to His people. And living in light of that reality. Knowing that He's going to do everything for His own glory. That He's going to do everything in, in, his, in accordance with His own nature. And that He is not going to fail in His love towards us. That He will deliver and save all of those that He intends to save. I want you to look at four words that conclude this psalm. For I am your servant. I am your servant. Those words, out of context, really wouldn't mean a whole lot. But in the context of this psalm, they're absolutely breathtaking. It should humble every one of us if we are able to, from our hearts, say those words. What true repentance looks like is really encapsulated in that one expression. To turn from serving the world and serving self, serving Satan, and looking to the author and perfecter of your faith and saying, I am your servant. And I can trust you. I can trust you to do all things for your namesake. I can trust you to act in righteousness And I can trust in your unfailing love. I can walk in mercy, not because I am good, not because I have lived perfectly, but because you are in fact faithful. And that faithfulness is rooted, God, in your righteousness. What a gift it is to come before the living God and acknowledge that we are together His servants. And we would be right to remind ourselves of the words that we find in Luke chapter 17 that we are at best unworthy servants. If we're going to walk in repentance, we're going to live lives saying, not with our mouths only, but also with our hearts, I am your servant. But at the same time, acknowledging week in and week out in a heart of repentance, we are at best unworthy servants. We haven't earned our way. 
into the kingdom of God, we have merely been shown grace. Now, Martin Luther wrote prolifically. And I don't agree with Brother Marty all the time. He makes some weird mistakes when it comes to communion and ecclesiology and all of those things. But God uses the instrument that He chooses. Um, Martin Luther was kind of a loudmouth. It's kind of obnoxious. Um, he, he probably never read how to um, win friends and influence people, whatever the name of the title of that book is. I, I'm guessing that he didn't read it because it was written 500 years after he lived. Um, he was a mess. But one thing that he understood through and through was that salvation was through the gospel of grace alone. For example, uh, he, when he wrote on Psalm 143, and he came to verse 3, For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me set in the darkness like those long dead. Luther wrote that the, that, that the wicked always persecute the righteous who live only in the faith and righteousness of God. And then when he came to verse 5, I remember the days of old, Luther said God has ever sustained, uh, has, excuse me, has never sustained anyone through his own works, abilities, and knowledge or his own righteousness. Again, Luther comes back to this idea of justification by faith alone. And as you kind of work your way through all of Luther's writings, you could kind of say, okay, but Luther, I had a professor in college actually that said this one time to me, and I love him, a dear brother of mine. He said, Jay, grace is not under every verse in the Bible. Wrong. Every verse of the Word of God is a grace. If it's rightly understood. Because it all speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ and you can't take His grace away from Him. But there are a lot of people that, look, you can't just constantly live on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's almost as though Luther knew in his commentary on this particular psalm that that was going to be the argument as he continually comes back to that doctrine. Because he, he, he wrote this, can't you, he said, somebody's going to say, can't you ever do anything but speak only about righteousness, wisdom, and the strength of God rather than the strength of men? Always expounding Scripture from the standpoint of God's righteousness, of God's grace, always harping on the same string and singing the same old song. Well, to answer that, Luther said this, let each one of you look to himself. But as for me, I confess, whenever I found less in the Scripture than Christ, I was never satisfied. But whenever I found more than Christ, I never became poorer. Therefore, it seems to me to be true that God, the Holy Spirit, does not know and does not want to know anything besides Jesus Christ. 
For Christ is God's grace, mercy, righteousness, truth, wisdom, power, comfort, and salvation given to us by God without any merit on our part. And then in in his final closing, Luther talked about our sins and the need that we weep over them. And then with humble awe, long earnestly for more grace and mercy in Christ. I think that what he's aiming at there, when we speak of justification by faith alone and the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we live our lives on those doctrines, we can't help but live a life that is full of repentance. You see, what what happens far too often is we think of the grace of God as a license to sin, but when we really become familiar with who Christ is and all that He has done to secure our redemption, what will flow from our heart is not a desire to sin, but a desire to repent. I hope that is increasingly so in our own gathering. That repentance isn't something ugly. That it's not something that we think is Catholic. Oh, never mind. That's a whole other rabbit trail. But that we see that repentance is something that is truly, and beloved, if you read your Bible, you will find that repentance is a gift of Almighty God. And that with the saints of God genuinely dwell in their justification by faith alone, repentance issues forth, lives are changed, and God is glorified. It is through repentance that God acts for His namesake. Would you pray with me? Father God, We are so foolish in giving flippant worship before your throne. We are so foolish as to believe that we can just come in and sing before you and acknowledge who we really are. Father, we're thankful that by the working of your Spirit, you convict us. And under the power and authority of your word, you show us who we truly are. That we have all become unprofitable servants. Father, we don't come tonight in our own merit, in our own goodness, but we come only because of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Might we be people who are always enamored like those who have gone before us in the faith, like your servant Martin Luther. Be enamored that we are justified by sheer grace alone. Might we not buy into the syllabubs of man-centered thought that teach us to hate Your grace, to think light of it. But might our hearts be filled through the working of Your Spirit that You and You alone have saved us for Your own namesake. And might we worship You in spirit and in truth, repenting of false forms of idol worship. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. If you would stand and sing holy, holy, holy.